John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 014.HG0105, certificate number 29414. Add busters. Like so many others, I had become a slave to the IKEA nesting instinct. Uh, yes, I'd like to order the Erica Picari dust ruffles. If I saw something clever, like a little coffee table in the shape of a yin-yang, I had to have it. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? Adbusters! Who are you going to call? Are we going to call Adbusters? Uh, Who are you not going to call? You need to be Adbusters. You don't call Adbusters, you are. Adbusters is a state of mind. Adbusters is a state of mind. We're going to talk about the state of mind on today's episode. This is not going to be one of those episodes where I describe a kind of squishy doll from the 80s. No. This is going to be a show where we talk about our inner lives. The 80s fetishizing will be back next week. <laughs> um, we are both uh, living in a uh, consumerist society. Yeah. Late stage capitalism, as we like to say. Baby. I don't actually like to say it. I feel like it's a phrase that- It's doomer to Lost right? is all its meaning, but- Well, it just seems very pessimistic, like- Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The Late collapse is coming. All right, all right, all right. But we definitely do live in a consumerist society, a capitalist society, a corporate-dominated capitalist society. Um, One might- even say a materialistic society. I think that's not much of a stretch. And now let's stop for our first ad break. That's right. John, what kind of deodorant do you use? Well, and that is going to be, uh, that's going to be a thing uh, on this show because um, colonization of the internet, which was initially supposed to be a free and open uh, Western uh, horse opera. A utopia. A utopia was very quickly and ubiquitously colonized by advertising uh, to the point that it uh, has exponentially more advertising than anything prior. If you took it all together from the very first advertisement you, uh, in ancient Sumeria. Like when people used to sit down and watch Mr. Ed with their families, the ads didn't gradually kind of overlap the screen. <laughs> no. so you couldn't see the horse anymore. No. I mean, the first 
pop-up ad was... It actually killed a man. The yeah. first pop-up ad was so shocking. Oh. It was so shocking that the first person who saw it died well, it of actually, a stroke. The first pop-up ad actually was a was a, a knife blade that came out of a vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> it was in a Jackie Chan movie? <laughs> But something has happened in recent years, in recent internet-based years, where uh, there has been a surrender, um, a surrender to advertising like nothing we've ever seen, because what 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 dost one do? What caneth one do? Advertising, I mean, you can put all the ad blockers you want on all of your programs, but they get by. They sneak around. They get around them. They're clever. They're cagey. You have to pay for YouTube, but they still get in there. Um, and of course, that wasn't always the case. And it's part of the, uh, it's part of why we are so dispirited, I think, because there was a time, low, not that many decades ago, when it still seemed like you could stand athwart corporate America's uh, domination of the culture and say, stop, basta. It did seem like a thing that we could collectively do. Like we could, not that individuals could opt out, but that we could change the flow of the river. Yes. And, and a big solidarity, a big part, solidarity, a big part of that was based around the idea that what advertising was doing and what corporate America was doing was colonizing our minds and that if enough of us resisted that, and not just resisted it, but undermined it, we could free other people's minds. You know, it was a an early version of wokeness. Um, Literally in the Matrix sense of take the pill that will let you see the terrible things that are happening here. That's right. It was the plot of the movie They Live, where you put the sunglasses on and you realize that there are buy, buy, buy ads all around. Um, that you would not be conscious of. Also, there were aliens who looked like humans. The aliens are metaphorical. Yeah. The aliens yeah. are the evil corporations. But that movie, They Live, uh, came out, and, and The Matrix a little bit later, during a, a kind of heyday, um, a last gasp maybe, of resistance to this kind of ubiquity of selling that we now – not just take for granted, but but have uh, have acquiesced to in a way that it no longer feels like you could uh, you could mount a revolt. And 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 I I think a lot of you know we talk now about uh, the death of irony and what what kind of is laughingly called a new sincerity, um, and what a lot of that. Uh, um, activity is is very earnest and direct resistance to corporate culture it's actual protests it is calls for legislation it's a um direct action direct action and a kind of and uh, with a revolutionary bent um but it uh once upon a time was much more and 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 this is a the, the word materialist is a kind of it's an interesting word and, and a multi-purpose word in the sense that we often think of materialism as being consumerist or synonymous with the pursuit of wealth consumption the fetishization right. of wealth but of course marxism is described i mean the 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 
the dialectical materialism is is Marx's description of his. That means something wealth. else, right? That just means what referring to the 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 material of the physical world. Yes, but it's very different. Um, both capitalism, late stage capitalism, and its and its uh, antipode. Uh, dialectical materialism are both concerned with the material world. Neither of those uh, philosophies is concerned and, and actively unconcerned with the spiritual and also the metaphysical, the emotional. I mean, emotional worlds are employed to sell uh, things, but but a person's well-being um, is not taken into it's a to account in kind of either of those ways of seeing. And I suppose that in the Marxist framework too often has the so-called spiritual just been co-opted by those in power. What's actually needed is for, you know, the, the most desperate need is for the, the person, the worker to figure out how to take care of himself, well, right? The, to, to make, to improve the, the physical world, their physical state. The active critique of religion being the opiate of the masses—it's—it isn't—it uh, isn't just that it's um, been co-opted, but that it—that the idea of religion is what dulls you to being manipulated because it's given to you as a as a an unreal salve to your material right. And I've understood that that's, that's what, in context, Marx's use of the quote is to say that right now, Western Christianity in particular has fed you the line that you should not rise up against your oppressor because there will be some kind of justice in the next world to come. And, and you, know, you, you know, he's not against religion per se, but as long as you're getting fed that line, nothing is going to improve for you. Right. But, you know, but the, the um, what's left kind of— what that right. implies is that your material well-being is your well-being. And I suppose that all religions, to some degree, have to embrace the fact that, you know what, there's something bigger than this. Well, yeah. And, and you should not be prioritizing. And a lot of religions, particularly Eastern religions, emphasize that your material life is the opposite of what well-being is. Hence the George Harrison album, Living in the Material World. Right. And, he and, didn't want to be in the material world, and now he's not. It all worked out for him. It's the opposite of, um, of the, the kind of material— what, what the, What's the evangelical— um, The prosperity gospel? The prosperity gospel. It's the opposite of the prosperity gospel. Your ministers are not supposed to be rich in, in a lot of Eastern religions. They are supposed to be the opposite of rich. All they're eating is the oranges you left on the shrine. Yes, if they're lucky. The yep. rest of the time, they're just standing with one arm extended for like 15 years. Hoping somebody will bring an orange. <laughs> um, a, a resist, there's, all, there, there's been a resistance to capitalism for centuries. As soon as there was a capitalist, there was, a, there was somebody that was like, what? This sucks. No. Boo. Um, but the kind of metaphysical uh, reaction to everything being a commodity really started to take a, a new a new tact after World War II, and the the kind of 
it was a reaction to the fact that very clearly now consumerism was was increasingly about associating desire with commodities. Yeah, and, n- yeah, nobody was trying to remake your brain in the industrial revolution. They just wanted you to work your body to the breaking point. Yeah, and but in, nobody was like, in hey, reply you would be able to take a train or you would be able to, you yeah. know. Um, but this is, let me rewrite your soul. Yeah. And, and gradually, uh, corporations through advertising sort of not just colonized public space, but they colonized psychic space, right? That we began to define not just our well being, but our personal identities through possession of external, uh, either goods and services or, or, possession of external signifiers last entry you said you now dream about polyester shirts how do you say what you said i did not yeah you dream about a rayon aloha shirt oh well i dreamt of a man who was wearing a rayon shirt i don't particularly yeah but look what happened like your thought space was colonized by the people who want you to care about which fibers of shirt convey which kind of a well, but the, the rayon Hawaiian shirts are all from the 30s and 40s, so nobody's trying to sell me those. But I believed that this person, I understood, you're absolutely right, I understood him to be knowable by the shirt, right? I saw the shirt and sure. I said, I know you, this my This problem friends. started in the 30s. Yeah. So that, r- recognizing that, you know, the French, I know that you don't like talking about the French. I, I don't either. French. Uh, but the French, of course, in the in the fifties, were really doing a lot of hard thinking around existentialism, and um, they were boring their girlfriends. <laughs> they really were. They were. They were. Uh, you know, I mean, Descartes uh, was in a Dodge Dart, and they're putting out cigarettes in a runny in a runny omelet and a runny fried egg somewhere, and <laughs> and moping, existentialist uh, moping. But there was a group. Uh, of uh, of kind of European theorists that uh, that kind of came up in the late fifties called the Situationists. Mm. Are you familiar with the Situation? You're nodding with some recognition. I I know about them. I kind of had a chance encounter with them through their idea of psychogeography. Go on. This idea that you can remake urban landscapes in uh, I still don't understand the upshot of the theory in kind of uh, whimsical ways where you know redrawing the city around you is a way to throw off the shackles of the oppressor who actually tells you, here's what your life is, here's what your day is, here's what your street is, here's how you get places. No, the people should be able to overturn that with the power of the mind. How does this tie into situationist thought? I'm not clear. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of situationalism, and they, they, they rejected situationalism, but a lot of the situationist international um, was based around the idea that the culture had become the spectacle. Mm. That the spectacle was meant to, through just a flood of information and images and opportunities to buy and um, encouragements to see yourself as defined by your tastes and your and the commodities that filled those desires. Uh, there was this spectacle and that it was it had it had colonized our psychic lives so that we were um 
Well, no longer able to think independently. Yeah, the self has been overwhelmed. And so we become we become components in a matrix, I guess, where we're all living in a greasy uh chrysalis. A nutrient bath. And uh and the aliens are sucking our life energy because we're an engine of some kind? None of that ever made any sense to me, but I thought we had it coming. But um so what situational what the situationist said was that um, there was something that we could do, uh, and they described it as detournement. Detournement. What does that mean? The tournament? Uh, it was. Uh, well, it's. It, what does it mean? Detournement. It's. It's all one word. Detournement. So not detournement. Is it spelled the same way? Well, T O U R N E M E N T. Detournement. Is it like the turning? Detournement. Rerouting or hijacking. So I guess it's a metaphorical kind of reuse or redirection of, of, uh, of resources or, or thoughts. Yeah. It's what later became known as culture jamming. And what it is, is to take the symbolism and the, and advertising and, uh, the kind of cultural, uh, the, the, the mind numbing consumerist, imagery and repurposing it satirically repurposing it in you know and annexing it and then using it to espouse radical ideas and this was a thing that they saw primarily as a a realm that you would use art to accomplish right this was not direct action this was shocking people out of complacency. Well, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. If somebody's colonizing their, their brains and their aesthetics, you just need to redirect that. You need to give them a, a different, better aesthetic to put, get them back on the course. That's right. And often the art was meant to uh, employ humor because, you know, if you, if you see something that's out of context, that's juxtaposed sort of against its original intention— and now has now is trying to communicate its opposite. There has to be that you have to be both familiar with the original intent of the imagery and the iconography, and then have that shock of recognition and realize that it's now being it's now being annexed and deployed to communicate an opposite meaning or a resistance meaning. A revolutionary. Movie. So, are they kind of retooling the the iconography and the logos of advertising, the language of of consumerism? But you know, but now it's like it's the equivalent of a, you know, the shock thing where Mickey Mouse pulls his pants down or whatever. Yeah, there's a. I mean, it's it's very varied, and of course, any art movement, you know, you throw it to the artists, and you you don't know what you're going to get. But it's it's meant to be satirical. It uses parody, but it also just I think that that what we do is we become inured to seeing advertisements and the glitz and glamour of of a consumerist public sphere, right? This all, isn't all happening just in television ads and uh, every fourth page in a magazine, and um, it, it it isn't stuff that you you opt into when you buy at the New Yorker. You know you're gonna there's at least three little cards that are going to fall out of it. And you know, they're going to be ads for Chivas Regal or whatever. Well, just driving down the street, you're going to see 30 logos. Well, and that's what they were talking about even more was that you are not 
you do not acquiesce to that. Yeah. You have not bought in to just on the drive from your home to your school. Here's, here's the golden arches. Seeing and 80 ads yeah. or 800 ads. And so your mind has to tune it out. Kind of like we try to tune it out on the internet. Although the internet, because it's so focused on a, on a one foot by eight inch screen, how it's many intrusive times, no yeah, matter what they do, how can you uh, avert your eyes? But as you're driving to work and you see all this, all this intrusive advertising that you did not, um, you did not consent. Your mind can blot it out to a certain degree, but when you see something that either is an altered version of a thing you see all the time, or something that evokes it, or something that you know directly parodies it, and yet you're used to seeing it and tuning it out. When you see it and you have the shock of like, wait a minute, that's not the golden arches. That's a couple of boobs or that's upside down or yeah. that's, it has a greater impact or meant to have a greater I impact. assume the idea is that in tuning it out, you've made it even more dangerous because now, now the, the agent has subconscious power over you. That's exactly right. Whereas if you were aware of it, you'd be able to struggle against it. And so there was, you know, there was a lot of sort of situationist, energy, but it was seen in the same category as a lot of postmodernism. Um, it was game playing. Yeah. And it was elitist. Yeah. Even, even as it's Marxist. Was it gallery art? Is that what, what it was? Oh or no, it was zines. It was, there were no zines yet. I don't think, but it, <laughs> it was, um, I think a lot of it was intended to appear in public space and, and interact with fashion and interact with with the the places where consumerism is sort of at its most um, caustic, but it was before an era where uh, there was, I mean, it was a mass media era, but it was also a mass media era where the resources necessary to actually mount an advertising campaign, even if it, I mean, and especially if it was, and we'll see in a minute, especially if it was. Um, a culture jamming one. There just wasn't that access. There's not now either. But it, um, what they discovered was very quickly mass culture, the spectacle, recognized a detournement and recuperated it. What does that mean? By like a process, yeah, where radical ideas were then re-annexed so that what you got was the commercialization, say, for instance, of punk fashion yeah. or ecological language being used to greenwash corporate uh, environmental devastation or you know, Even something as simple as the self-aware ad that says, hey, I know you're going to hear a lot of ads, but I'm going to give you the straight talk. Like Even those those award-winning Volkswagen ads where they spoke ironically about like, right. look at this little ugly car. Uh, and those won all the, you know, all the Clio awards for years. Uh, we see it a lot now in, uh, I don't know if this is actually the term, but it seems like in the same way greenwashing is greenwashing. You see a lot of color washing now where companies have extremely diverse ad campaigns. I was, I was walking in the London underground this summer and I guess Lego is 90 
Say what? And uh, Lego, Le- the Lego company has turned 90. Oh. And so their their ad campaign shows people of all races, colors, creeds, generations, grandparents with grandkids, elderly lesbian couples, everybody talking about their um, their uh, Lego history and their 90 years of playing with Lego. And there's like there's like an elderly West Indian man, you know, who's clearly, you know, who's in the one of these diverse kind of Benettoni ads talking about his love for 90-year-old Legos. And I'm thinking maybe he's maybe he's paired with a multiracial family. And I'm like, how are we supposed to think that 90 years ago this this Afro-Caribbean guy discovered Legos with with what his 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 white wife and multiracial kids. I mean, it's it implies that everybody's been doing this for ninety years, even though you know the first fifty years of Lego's history is very white and Danish. Yeah, right. Or eighty years of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned Benetton. When Benetton, which was a clothing company, and I guess still is, Benetton ads even in the nineteen eighties showed an incredibly diverse group of models, and it was radical. Right at the time, and now it's universal. And there are a lot of companies where the the greatest their the, their progressivism is in their ads that, and it doesn't reflect the actual diversity no. initiatives of the con- company at all. Right? And it, it been often deployed for shock value, like, "Oh, did we put a plus size model in this commercial? Oh, sorry <laughs> if that offends you. I hope you're offended. Please write about this." <laughs> waka waka waka. <coughs> well. Let's fast forward to the late 80s. Um, In Canada, a man by the name of uh, Kale Lawson, who was an Estonian-Canadian, who'd grown up overseas and was a documentary filmmaker and had actually worked in advertising um, for a while in Asia, was now living in Canada. And was it was during a period, late 80s, when the forestry industry in, in the western states, Canada and Washington and Oregon, specifically BC, uh, they were employing, you know, this kind of clear-cut style of forest management where they went in and just shaved the mountains. A lot of BC was not really visible from the roads. It was, you know, all these kind of uh the the whole area there in in um western bc along the water very inaccessible except the timber companies could go in and just just mow the trees down nobody would ever see it or regulate it and there started to be a a, a backlash cultural backlash in the west this was during the spotted owl days up here where the people started to rebel against this idea that the timber companies alone in their in you know in a handful of corporate entities could could decimate the forests that through some combination of 150 year old uh land use rights they had acquired what we all considered public land i mean it, who does the forest belong to when there are hundreds and hundreds of square miles of forest, how could that possibly belong to some co- who? How did we give consent to this? So there was a lot, and you know, and 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 again, it dates back to the railroads and and all this incentive 
given to forestry companies to help develop the West. Um, but the, the, um, the timber companies responded to this groundswell of protest that, that really threatened them, um, by pretty much inventing greenwashing. And they posted all of these television commercials. You know, they, they paid for a huge advertising campaign, uh, a group called the BC council of forest industries. To this day, this kind of rhetoric seems very familiar if you're from the Pacific Northwest yeah. and you've seen any of these forestry industry-sponsored museums or bumper stickers that say, yay, another working forest. And we, I was just up at Mount St. Helens this summer and went into the Weyerhaeuser Museum that was so much better than the actual state-run Mount St. Helens Museum. And it was all about like, oh my God, can you imagine, you know, Warehouser has done so much for us. If they us. hadn't pl- replanted all those trees, wh- oh, where would we that. be? We've, they've planted more trees in the last six hours than God planted in a thousand <laughs> years. It's like, I know, I know. Anyway, uh, the BC Council of Forest and Industries had in 1988 uh, a series of TV ads called Forests Forever. And it, and they really poured it on how what great stewards of the forests they were, and Kale Lassen, as a as a filmmaker was, and 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 as a kind of situationist, a proto situationist, he was just so appalled by the cynicism of it, and he said, "You know, I'm going to make an ad." And he he had a partner by the name of Bill Schmalls. The two of them collaborated on a television ad uh, where uh, a little, a small tree was talking to a large tree, and the large tree was explaining that a tree farm is not a forest. And we experience this in the Northwest all the time. And you see it in it, 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 basically most forests in Europe are managed forests. Yeah. And they aren't forests, they're tree farms. And we have watched a lot of the forests here in the Northwest turn into monoculture tree farms. I think Weyerhaeuser now is trying to not have it be a monoculture. They're planting five kinds of trees in even rows. But um, Not going to do it, Weyerhaeuser. So Lazen takes these ads, these television ads, to CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. And CBC said, and he has, he's put together the money to buy advertising time to compete with the BC Council of Forest Industries. He wants to show these ads on, on television and on the CBC. But the CBC says, no, these ads are what they called advocacy advertisement, which is verboten because it's too political. Wait, you can't put PSA type ads on? Not Canadian TV. Not, I feel like USA TV, US TV at the time, you could have advocated for a social cause in an ad by. Well, it depends on whether or not, it, it, at least in this instance, whether or not your ad offended bigger advertisers. And I guess is CBC state-run TV in a way that no US network? Yeah, although uh, although US networks also did not embrace. Hmm. You know, if you think about. There were PSAs because that's part of the right. FTC, you know, uh, accommodation of the public airways that a certain, you know, uh, 
they have to, or at least they used to, have to air a certain number of public service announcements. And you could, but there's plenty of campaign ads that are also strongly partisan. Well, outside of campaign election season, there's not, huh? There aren't a ton of situations where I mean, you know, PETA will have a PSA, but but not they they're not really buying primetime advertising. Mm. You don't. I mean, what what what's the most activist Super Bowl ad you ever saw? I remember Super Bowl ads have been turned down when people try, you know, Planned Parenthood or somebody tries to buy a Super Bowl ad. Right. Or maybe it was from the right. But I have read about U.S. ad time getting turned down for the same reason. Well, so Collie and Bill decide uh, that this is, um, this is now something that they are devoting themselves to. And they start a media foundation called Media Foundation. <laughs> And they start to advocate for what they call the Media Carta, which is a new charter uh, granting human beings the right to communicate without an intermediary in the you know in the form without uh, without the the public space being dominated by commercial corporate interests. actors, yeah, right. Um. And they describe it as, in kind of parallel with the environmental movement, they describe it as the mental environmental movement. Mm. So the idea being that your that your mind and your identity are, are environments. Also an ecology that needs to be protected. That's right. Okay. Um, and and they, are, they, they aspire to clean up the toxic environment of the mind. That really resonates with the 20th century audience who probably feels like their mind is kind of a death trap in there. Yes, I definitely feel like my mind is colonized, right? I mean, do you, you, you seem a little bit more immune to it, but you know, I'm an, I have an addictive personality and, and a fair amount of just baked in insecurity and, and, uh, it isn't so much consumerism, but certainly a, a world of ideas I didn't welcome in yeah. that are in their, you know, a battle royale neighborhood stick fight between my ears. Yeah. I feel like I have very little control over whatever the melody is that's running in my head, whatever the insecurity is that's running in my head. Uh, they don't seem like things that like a pre-industrial revolution farmer would have in his head. He might have intrusive thoughts too, but uh, not at this pace and volume. Yeah, right, right. And and most of a 19th century farmer's intrusive ideas would be coming from the Bible <laughs> or his one copy of Shakespeare's sonnets. Well, they might right? be true also. It might be like, well, boy, what if the... Well, if it's in the Bible, what if it's the, true. What if the sorghum dies, you know? Right. Well, and a lot of that is also materialist, right? There's um, There are people whose, whose lives are dominated by real events, yeah. uh, uh, Every superhero lives more or less an uncomplicated life because they're confronted with a villain and they fight the villain. And a lot of, and then at the end, they know whether they won or not because the villain's defeated. And I think a lot of people who regularly consume media now, uh, also in their lives, in their work life, for instance, they're trying to solve a problem. They come to work, the problem is identified, it's put in their in basket. They work to solve it, and it goes in the outbasket, and there's a sense of of completion. Um, but a lot of this stuff is 
a lot of this mental, this toxic mental environment is the result of work that is preying on your psycho-spiritual, right? Am I good? Am I healthy? Am I successful? Am I popular? None of it is really resolvable. There's, there's no, there's no concrete problem. So there's no concrete solution. Uh, and it becomes a, it becomes a thing you cannot solve. And so you must keep consuming, which is perfect. Yeah. They'll, they'll keep send, sending you new, selling you new things for that. So Kali Lawson and, and Bill Schmalls start a magazine called ad busters. And uh, in 1989 in, in Vancouver, Canada and ad busters, uh, the, the ad busters advocates an active resistance to this kind of global commercialization of our interior spaces. And they advocate in a situationist kind of framework, actively combating your, the, the colonization of these public spaces and, and your private space that you, where you haven't consented to it. Is this like a crazy leaflets you get in the mail or like, is it a magazine with articles? They have scholars writing this stuff. It's a magazine with articles. They have lots of scholars who are talking about the, uh, this is very existential, right? I mean, a lot of these ads, but this is during a time when protest and art are really communicating with each other. If you think about act up, a lot of the mm. act up protests took the form of art happenings kind of, you know, there was a lot of art because the art scene was being shredded by AIDS. Exactly. Yeah. If you think about even the, you know, the protest movements around the Vietnam war, there was a lot of art used in those spaces. And some of it was ironic and some of it wasn't. Now there, uh, this is right around the time or, or during the same era. I mean, it, the famous quote was that when Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace peace prize it was the death of satire um because how how can you make fun of that robin williams famously said you know that satire isn't dead he lives in the white house yeah um but the idea that it's impossible to satirize a culture that's already so ridiculous it's impossible to discern is this a joke or is this real i mean now every time you you look at a news article you're like that could have been an onion headline five years ago and now it's like just on, full on reality. On Twitter, often you have to like go back and get, you know, spend 10 minutes getting context on the poster to find out, is this being, is this a gag or not? Yeah. You know? is Which this a side bit? of this am I on? Yeah. Because it seems reasonable, but also the opposite is true. You know, during the 2016 election, I, I wrote and recorded that song, uh, Make America Great Again, mm -hmm. where I recorded it in the voice of a MAGA, a MAGA hat. And put it out. Now the you know it went out on channels that were predisposed to exposing it to people that weren't going to take it seriously. But I hoped and prayed that it would find a real. Uh, nothing would make me happier than that it got played at a real mega rally. Um, and eventually, I did. It did disseminate far enough that I started to get messages from people that were like, "God damn right, about time somebody had the guts to say it." And I sang it in a little bit of a of a a ginned up uh, American yeah. country ass accent. But, you know, very quickly I realized, oh wait, 
there are plenty of people on the left. I wanted it to get played at a MAGA rally. What happened was people on the left misunderstood it. And I said at the time, you know, the, the, it's impossible for the right to satire liberal views in song that would fool a liberal. That's true. Whereas you can fool a MAGA by just, you know, just putting their talking points in there. But what I realized was I fooled liberals by unintentionally by making us a MAGA song because it sounded legit to them. And so it was, you know, there was a lot of, that was not what I expected would happen. I saw Father's uh, Misty the other night and he has some songs that are kind of in the voice of some Trump hat wearing dad or whatever. Yeah. And he kind of has to announce at the start of the song now, this is a song about, you know, uh, Trump hat wearing dad giving bad advice to his daughter. Two, three, four, like. Right. So please don't, yeah, you know. He's, he's got to bracket it. Um, but in the late 80s and early 90s, it was a lot clearer when you were being satirical. Even though there was, by that point in time, a, quite a history of corporations um, subverting the uh, detournement and turning it into a recuperative kind of like, oh, punk rock, you know, you want anarchy? Well, we'll sell it to you at Walmart. De detournement. De detournement. So Adbusters kind of took off. And I don't know, you've never seen the magazine? No. What does it look like? Does it look like a magazine, like a glossy magazine? It looks like a pretty slick magazine. So would they actually sell it at newsstands and stuff, or did you have to be part of, part of the movement? Or Absolutely. I sold it at my newsstand. I was, I was aware of it before I started working at the newsstand. But once I worked there, you know, I read it every uh, – it, it was bimonthly. Um, at its peak, it uh, had 120,000 subscribers. Well, it looks really stylish and well-designed. Is that part of the gag? Yeah. That like, you know, we're against everything the glossy magazines are doing to you. Here's our glossy magazine that tells you so. Well, and, and, and also recognizing that the gloss is effective mm. and let's call it, let's, let's, um, like use the tools of the oppressor against him. Yeah. And, and also, you know, there's nothing intrinsically evil about good photography and, and good quality paper. It's, it's the message contained within. And if the, if, if there's real power to good photographs, I mean, this is kind of the, the problem often with revolutionary leaflets is that they're made to look hand scrawled because there's a sense of it being yeah. more authentic. Authenticity. But of course you see those things. And I mean, your mind blots those out just as it does the golden arches. Somebody hands you a leaflet on the street that says, you know, socialism smashed the state. And you're like, yeah, 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 I get it. Oh, oh, well, good. A crazy Xerox thing. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Lost dog. Uh, and what Adbusters did was they they came in kind of during that. There was also that period, or during this same period, there was a a groundswell of monkey wrenching, right? The idea that these corporations, particularly the ones cutting down the forests and building giant uh, salmon killing dams and all these you know uh, causes that the environmental movement located as this is before global warming was well understood and what environmentalism looked like was we're losing all these species, Habitats, yeah. we're losing habitats, we're losing the 
you know, and and it, and it coincides with global warming. Still relevant, turns yeah. out. But monkey wrenching was a form of direct action that involved these these doctrines of sort of um, these bulldozers sabotage. These, right? Yeah, it's a it's a form of sabotage, and and justified by the by the ends, justifying the means, and so destroying these. Uh, these bulldozers, although it's vandalism and uh, and and absolutely attracts the attention of the sheriff, it's justified because the, these companies have no right to decimate the forest in this way. And there were a couple of famous novels, famously The Monkey Wrench Gang. Edward Abbey. Um, and so Adbusters took that mentality and and migrated it over to the world of visual media advertising as a form of, uh, again, a, uh, a conviction that, that these companies have no right to cloud our minds. And so vandalism in this context is appropriate. Uh, and Adbusters encouraged a lot of sort of uh, uh, ironic direct action in the form of climbing up and defacing billboards, but not defacing them, just spray painting over them, but actually changing the message, you know, subversively. Uh, yeah. Putting, you know, making the, making the Marlboro man have crossed eyes or, you Got know, him. you know, or saying like, Oh, this SUV, you know, like, do you have a, do you have a micro penis? You know, a lot of this kind of um, subversion that was meant to shock people out of their complacency. At the time, uh, late 90s, I actually joined a group of billboard defacers and we had secret missions. It's you know, the statute of limitations is over now, but we had, we bought walkie talkies. And one of us was pretty athletic, acrobatic person. It's got to be hard to get up there, right? And so we had, we had, uh, lookouts that we would post on street corners, you know, two blocks away from the billboard we decided to target. And we would do all this preparation, prepare wheat paste signage that we, you know, it kind of made thumbnail measured how it would fit on the on the billboard and I assume high production value. Like yeah, it, it well, looks good. Right? Tried to duplicate the graphic art. Yeah. And I mean, I was no good at any of that stuff, but I was muscle and was capable of kind of manning my corner. And we'd go out at two o'clock in the morning and, and our, uh, our acrobatic sort of ringleader would hoist himself up. And anytime there was a car coming, we'd get on the walkie talkies like car, and, uh, and we probably did, we probably worked on a dozen billboards in Seattle over the course of a year. Were you guys just a little collective deciding yeah. how to do it yourselves yeah. or, or was somebody sending down no, uh, assignments? We, we were just, a, we were just inspired by the idea and like a lot of the stuff, like I, I, you know, there was a brief period in the early nineties where I had been converted to the idea that. Tagging and particularly big graffiti pieces were a sort of necessary reclaiming of these brutalist industrial environments under the freeways 
you know, all these places where, where the, the infrastructure and the civic landscape had been turned into a, a completely lifeless concrete corridor where the wind just blew trash. And to go down there and paint big, graffiti, beautiful graffiti yeah. piece was a way of humanizing these spaces. And I was really enamored with the viewpoint, If I, although I may not have uh, fully adopted it emotionally. I, I did sort of, I understood it and I, and I agreed with it. And I, and I had a tag. I was called, I'd been sort of gifted this tag by a group of graffitiists. Taggers. I didn't know you had to be like given a Yeah, you're given a name. Given a name I mean like you can a, sit and come up with a name, but it makes it 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 was it was glamorous to have been given a name by some prominent taggers at the time. Because you know, I was a street scumbag and I should have my street name. My name was Eggs because I was an egghead. What? And so they you were, were like because you're you're a smarty pants for uh, a graffiti artist. Yeah, I was like, oh, he's the egghead. He knows all about the dude. Eggs. And so I was. This is eggs. the same way they name like the members of a of a Saturday morning cartoon exactly. team. You're the hacker in the wheelchair now. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, you're greaseball, or or it's how you know it's how they name Top Gun pilots. Exactly. But the problem with eggs is it's an extremely hard tag to draw. How do you draw <laughs> E and two G's and an S? You know if you're if your tag is like ants, uh, that's that's like cool eggs. And so I I started drawing the G's like, you know, the little O and then the big O yeah. with the little tail and the hair and the, but that is ve- that's very involved. But gradually I felt like I fell off with graffiti art as I watched tags go up on, you know, like nice like on the side of the library. And I was like, that's not, you're not taking back a, uh, yeah. like, a if you're, if you're tagging a mural, like the mural was already the tag. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I didn't, I didn't like, if you can believe it, you know, the vast majority of, of, uh, graffiti taggers, like the majority of skateboarders are not geniuses. I don't believe it. And so there was a, uh, there was a kind of like, wait a minute, what are we doing? Well, I'm, I'm not out here to like to ruin a church but come on eggs anyway yeah i know hey eggs you're anyway adbusters um adbusters initiated by nothing day no way yeah by nothing day did not exist no by nothing day was a was adbusters trying to again get the word out colonize the or recolonize the space or decolonize the space by saying you know, buy nothing on this day, and that will radicalize people because everybody can understand that, right? It's a rejection of consumerism, but it actually kind of saves you the hassle. I mean, it's, a, it's easy to grok, right? right? It's not like buy nothing this year. It's not, yeah. I mean, maybe that's a, a criticism of it that it's a little, it's, you know, it's an easy, comfortable kind of a. Uh... Slacktivism thing to do. Well, and this was this was an active criticism of it. it um, you know, I think it was it was Naomi Klein who wrote a book called No Logo, who said, uh, you know, Buy Nothing Day became like a triple irony when she saw Buy Nothing Day merch. <laughs> but don't buy it. <laughs> and she was, buy this know, tomorrow. You know, you can buy it the day before, right? Yeah. 
Uh, Adbusters initiated TV turnoff week. Mm. And TV turnoff week, I mean, and that's obviously much harder to spend an entire week, Ken, uh, you can without. Still, you can still watch streaming, right? No. What? No. What about HBO? No, I'm sorry. It's not TV. It's nope. HBO. Nope. I'm not against, I, I don't like that kind of criticism that, you know, oh, this is such an easy, small thing. I mean, maybe, maybe that's how you, maybe that's how you win hearts and minds, you know, like maybe this is the anti-consumerist thing that somebody will try first. Right. Well, and TV turnoff week gradually, my, uh, gradually, gradually evolved into digital detox week. Mm. Can you go a week with no uh, electronic device? Is that rhetorical? Because no, I can't. Well, and most people can't. So on the you know on the cruise that you and I both uh, took a couple of years ago, uh, a character named David Reese, an artist who uh, drew the "Get Your War On" comic strip in all the alternative papers back during the Bush administration. David Reese had a group called the Internet. Uh, chastity society right or the internet uh, temperance yeah, society, yeah, yeah. Uh, where he's you know he asked a bunch of people to agree that they would surrender their phones at the beginning and not look at the internet for seven days and a bunch of people did but it was a lot harder than it seems um but ad busters you know they employed flash mobs they employed stickering there was that that series where Tiger Woods's smile got replaced with a Nike logo, you know, and a lot of it was, did they face lawsuits on IP grounds? Cause you know, they're reappropriating. Well, if you think about, um, and I, and I've, I've considered doing this as an omnibus episode. It may still, but the negative land, uh, band, right. Putting out records called U two and, and Pepsi. Did uh, they lose that suit? I can't remember. They really tried to, they tried to get sued, and I think ultimately maybe nobody bit. No, they did get sued. You two sued them. Uh, well, I'll save that for the episode I do on that topic. Ultimately, um, Adbusters sued the Canadian broadcasters for refusing to sell, refusing to take their ad buys, and um, in two thousand four. The uh, wait a minute, no, they 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 sued him in two thousand four. It wasn't until two thousand nine that the BC Court of Appeals uh, reversed the BC Supreme Court and said that Adbusters could sue. Huh. Um, they still haven't. It was just like a standing issue. Yeah, they still haven't. Uh, they still haven't won the suit. Um, and you know the argument against it. Well, and the. And, this is in the in the suit in the defense of their lawsuit. Uh, the CBC said that their ads would upset advertisers and contaminate the purity of the media environment. Wow! Designed exclusively for uh, for commerce. If advertising is questioned, that's that makes the environment impure. The purity of the environment means all advertising goes unquestioned. So here I, I see the only network that agreed to uh, air their ads was CNN. I mean, you can see why. Like the networks also rely on there being uh, an eager uh, set of 
powerful corporations that want to fund them. Yeah. I mean, they, they don't exist if, if the idea of television advertising becomes, seems icky or creepy. Well, part of the difficulty of this episode is that during the course of this episode, there will be, I think, one or two instances where you and I uh, read and improvise around a script. In a cool... In our cool, in a, hip way. In, in, yeah, in a cool, self-aware way. Yeah, where we're like, ha, 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 but here we are. But still, we took the money. Yeah, trying to earn some portion of our living from selling products. And we're grateful to the companies that understand that podcast audiences are ones that you can advertise to. But we both, I think, would prefer to live in a world where we didn't do ads, particularly this afternoon when we're both really exhausted and we still have to record two ads. Maybe we should just start the culture jamming now and not record those ads. Hmm. As people listen to the show, understand that we appreciate the irony, but that also satire is dead because Kissinger won the uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. So where are we? We're just two regular guys just trying to trying to make it in the big city. You're just eggs. Support our Patreon. <laughs> um. In the 2010s, uh, Adbusters actually entered into the commercial world, developing a sneaker called the Black Spot Sneaker, which was designed by Fluvog. Was ma- it's entirely vegan, uh, made uh, out of shredded tires, and they found a, uh, a a union shop that would manufacture it, albeit in Portugal, and they started advertising the Black Spot sneaker as a kind of example of grassroots capitalism. Oh, I see. This is not a this sneaker is not a critique. It's a genuine sneaker. It's a sneaker. This is just an. Uh, they they are. I mean, it's basically like a lot of companies kind of co opted this. Um, we're not trying to make a profit. We're just trying to make the best thing possible. Um, and again, in the sort of Naomi Klein criticism of it, uh, a lot of people said, well, wait a minute, there's no longer any tension between mainstream and alternative culture. Uh, alternative culture is trying to take a market share of and and whatever their methods, whatever their end result, it's still information pollution. And, you know, you're not finding black spot sneakers because there's somebody at Speaker's Corner behind a overturned apple crate. You're finding it because there are ads for it. And it's competing against whatever, Nike sneakers. Um, you're just... It's part of this this ethos of put your dollar in a direction that supports uh, the the fight for climate change, but it's just a version of the same materialism. It's lost its um, it's lost the idea that we are fighting the spectacle and looking for right the some clarity. I mean, if you're worried about the spectacle and the density and the noise, the correct response is to not put out a magazine, which, which merely adds to the density of 
you know, the initial idea of the magazine was take these methods and go tear it down. And then once, you know, unlike all idealists, like once everybody's aware of uh, yeah. uh, advertising is, has snuck into our world, we won't need this magazine anymore because, you know, we'll have stopped all the billboards. But the magazine's self-perpetuating. And even if you start it with the best of intentions, it's always going to be like, all right, we got to put out another issue of this anti-magazine magazine. It becomes its own justification for its own existence. Yeah, it was described as the rebel cell. <laughs> it's a rebel cell. Cry more, more, more. Well, in 2011, in recent memory, if you recall the Arab Spring protests, mm -hmm. um, and in particularly in Egypt, in Tahrir Square, uh, the there was a profound sense that protests could actually cleanse what had up until then, you know, the Mubarak administration or the Mubarak dictatorship did not seem vulnerable to street criticism. Mm -hmm. But there was this, this uh, tremendous wellspring. And I think a lot of people tried to, and successfully, I think, argue that social media and the internet facilitated this uprising throughout the Arab world, and it produced mixed results. Gaddafi and Mubarak were out, but Assad destroyed his own country. Yeah, a lot of it didn't take. But watching the Arab Spring in those early days of uh, the uh, feeling that great hope, the people running Adbusters, uh, who were extremely frustrated by the great bailout after the economic collapse in 2008, mm. um, came up with an idea called Occupy Wall Street <laughs> and promoted their, their idea. We're all going to march on Wall Street on this particular day and send it out through their you know, there are many uh, activist networks. I had no idea. And got a lot of sort of their contemporaries and other groups that were planning protests and other groups that had allied, that then allied themselves with this movement. And, uh, the, you know, the New York City police got a little bit of a they – got, they got some advance warning enough that they closed off a couple of areas in New York that had been considered for, um, for Occupy, but they eventually settled on Zuccotti Park and Occupy became then a, uh, you know, an, an incredible media event that since then has spread to, to kind of a global movement of, not not really an existential occupation at all, but a literal physical interruption the I was reminded the other day that the idea of uh, forgiving student debt was not even in the public sphere, and it started out as kind of a you know a, a crazy leaflet occupy wall street idea and it's now it's now official u s domestic policy because you know you can colonize 
good thoughts as well as intrusive ones. Right, right. And it's, it's, it's interesting to see the, the, um, the transmutation of this situationist notion that we were being hypnotized to one of we can hypnotize too. I mean, well, it's not even that. It's just storming the barricades, right? Yeah. There's there's very little difference between Occupy Wall Street and storming the Bastille. The only difference being that they didn't actually get inside, and they smoked some pot in the park. Yeah, and 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 banged on some drums. But they have, you know, they have uh, they have changed the course of the world. It just became a lot more material. And that concludes Adbusters, entry 014.HG0105, certificate number 29414, in the Omnibus. Now, let's advertise ourselves for a moment. Hey! And our um, our uh, sustainable uh, Portuguese websites that we've created. Sustainable website. At Omnibus Project. Uh, we're at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on social media. You can email us your uh, screeds, anti-corporate screeds at the omnibus project at gmail.com. Mail us your unwanted uh, corporatist items. That's what would really show up these multinationals. A bunch of uh, if you just Air send- Jordans that yeah. are still in their boxes. If you were to just send us a bunch of like Rolex watches to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. What is the materialist thing that best or most defines you uh i don't know is it is it status on alaska airlines what is it (laughs) is it (laughs) yeah airline status is it your electric car no No, it's not your it's fashion it's probably like uh it's probably like a home theater right it's like a it's i mean those they're not expensive but like well it's nice to have a movie theater screen in your house i mean that incredible collection of bound comic books from from the last century. Pretty <laughs> astonishing. But you know, if there was a fire in your house, you wouldn't grab your bound volumes of Pogo, would you? What would you? What would yeah, I actually would. It would, <laughs> it would, be, it would be Pogo first. No, I don't even All those even Fantagraphics know. Peanuts collections. Oh man, those would be second. I'd be probably just, I mean, what do you grab? You don't grab... Photo albums. Yeah, photo albums. Yeah. I guess in, in my house, art would be a runner-up. Oh yeah, right. Um, but photo albums for sure except now that's all digital since i mentioned the uh since i mentioned the p.o box uh, laura oh no R- check this out if you say my name in the outro of a future episode it rhymes with sarah or tara it's Lara. not it's not laura or lara hello Lara. hello lara thank you for sending kalel to earth he's doing a great job here um, Lara sent us a reprint, a 1920 reprint of Albert Hubbard's biographical series, Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great. I think this was in, uh, which omnibus was this? Was it the, is he the, um, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home guy? If, you know, I don't remember the, uh, the episode we just did. <laughs> oh, it's a message to Garcia. This is the guy that wrote a message to Garcia. And this is a, a collection of his works. Lara thought this was perfect because one is about authors 
That's for me. And one is about businessmen because you're the CEO of the Roderick Group. Yeah. So, oh, these are very nice. Here's biography of William Morris. These are from 1920? Yeah. Uh, these are late 20s reprints. Oh, that William Morris is, you know, that plays right in. Yeah, I'm going to save my William Morris wallpaper if there's a fire. And here is yours that has biographies of Andrew Carnegie and John Jacob Astor. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's that's mm-hmm. very exciting. Ah, and in fact, she sent us this fake chick tract. What? Uh, it's from the Seattle Burning Man community. Didn't we? Didn't somebody tell us about these? I feel like maybe we've received these before. I don't. I don't recall receiving a chick tract from Burning Man. Yeah, it's based on a, a guy named uh, the Seattle Burning Man community. I guess had a guy named David Peterman who is lampooned. Here and so hilarious in jokes. If you know a lot about the Seattle Burning Man community, the idea is they would leave these like chick tracks and uh, and turn people on to. Um, oh, so it's a little bit of burn. culture jamming. Let me see it. Yes, this is culture jamming. If you feel the problem with our culture is not enough people going to Burning Man, the Peterman plan. Whereas I tend to be, you know, have the opposite point of view. These look these look pretty legit. I thought it was a chick track when I opened it. Welcome to the Burner Newbie Picnic. Wow, thanks. Somebody. I believe somebody sent us one of these before, Lara. So we are now, we're going to assemble a full set of fake chick tract parodies. Oh my God. This is 100% gibberish if you are not a, a total, like, dyed in the wool member of this subculture. Please stop interrupting me. I'm reading my biography of William Morris. Wait, I thought that was the one you were giving me. Oh, you're getting John Jacob Astor oh. and uh, Andrew Carnegie. Wow. This is really, really insider. Thank you so much, Lara, and I apologize. I said your name right several times to make up for saying it wrong once. Uh, you can find other listeners of the show by looking for the Futurelings on Facebook and Discord and Reddit, etc. Go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject to support the show uh, with really the only currency that matters, uh, actual currency. This, got- is, this is a way of culture jamming because it'll keep us from uh, recording as many ads. I got to say about this uh, fake chick track that it's twice as long as a regular chick track <laughs> and none of it makes any sense Maybe at all. Maybe it just seems twice as long. <laughs> the art is um, not as good as the good chick track artist, but it's roughly the same as like kind of your average yeah. replacement yeah, chick track. They do a pretty good job with that. It's no. just like, what are you talking about? That's the whole Burning Man vibe. Uh, maybe, you know what? Maybe I should do a Burning, Man, a Burning Man episode and just read that aloud. We can annotate it. We can try to explain it. The Seattle Burning Man community needs this. Attention must be paid. I know a couple of people that are Seattle Burning Man adjacent. So. SBMA? Mm-hmm. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope you many goods... And cheese. We, and hope, wish, we, we and, hope you many good cheese. And wish you to be back with you soon for another entry in the album.